Can we figure out what's going to happen on Mars? No, we don't know the vast majority of why pathogens cause disease down here on Earth, but it's incredibly important. Microbes rule our world. We're just playing in it. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, yeah, baby Cheryl Nickerson. I surprise myself sometimes, Matt. Um, yeah. Cheryl Nickerson, Professor, Bio Design Center for Fundamental and Applied Microbiomics. Yeah. Expert on diseases and stuff. Do you know why I've chosen that as a quote, Jamie? Oh, I can't think why. I mean... No one's banging on about it, are they? <laughs> no, I thought this week we'll do a virus special. Just when you thought that you were going to get some escapism <laughs> via the medium of a podcast, we're going to ram some virus facts down your throat. <laughs> but by the way, should we just start, Matt, by saying that we don't mean to take light of what is a very serious situation, um, but we thought we'd do. Uh, we, we were discussing it, weren't we, over our dinner mm. last week? We had dinner, very romantic dinner, and um, and we thought, well, heck it, should we do a virus special? Absolutely, and I've actually uh, got some advice uh, from the wonderful Bob, one of our great patrons over in the ah, Discord yes, channel. Thank who, you, Bob. Who, who works for the NHS, and he's given us some good advice. I, I shall be reading that out at the end. That is a hell of a reason to listen in. Stick around. Stick around. But before we go into Virai, let's uh, talk about uh, Percy Lowell, whose birthday <gasps> is today. Happy birthday. Birthday. The most influential popularizer of planetary science in America before Hands Carl Sagan. down. Yeah, so he built... Loads of brilliant observatories, including, obviously, the Lowell Observatory. Lowell. Lowell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yes, he's most famous, of course, for his canals on Mars. He is. Yeah, which yeah. kind of led for H.G. Wells writing uh, War of the Worlds. Incredible series of events. Where now, human race is saved by a virus. So there that, is a connection there. Yes. Matt, do you know that um, as a rule of thumb, I'm pretty prompt, aren't I? I'm never really that I, late. Yeah. No, no, you are quite good. You're not, you're not as good, good as good. me on the old punctuality, you're but yes, pre- you're pretty good. You're, you're pretty good, although uh, you were a little bit late for our dinner date the other night, but I'll forgive you. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other Franklins in the world that are delayed. See what I've done there, Matt? It was a classic yeah, segue into this yeah. link. Rover mission delayed until 2022. Wow. Sad face. Oh, that is proper sad face. It's incredible to think about this mission, right, Jamie? It's It's been going since 2005. Yeah. It's an old hat. Uh, NASA was helping out originally. Then Russia came in to fill the gap. Exactly. The Americans thought, no, change of circumstances, we can't help you out. Russia went, we'll help you out, European Space Agency. So let's go through it. Supposed to launch in 2011, then shifted to 2013 um, as the project itself became more ambitious, right? But of course, it it never happens 
on time. So that slipped to 2016. Yeah. And then we were talking about it as the thing that we were excited for, for a launch in 2018. And then oh, we thought it was going to be 2020. But now, but now oh God, 2022. But you know next, what? Uh, we remain mm-hmm. positive, don't we, Matt? Are we are we a pair of silver lining? When it lands on Mars in 2023, and I'm really yeah, old, exactly. And, and you're, and even you're getting quite old by that point. Oh man, yeah. It's going to be very exciting. I mean, the longer it gets left, the more stressful this is going to be. I mean, think about it. It's going to be. It's ten years behind schedule, essentially, mm. and it it might just smash into tiny pieces on the Mars surface, just like oh, every other attempt by Russia and Europe before it. Uh, the track record is 100% smashage. So talking of smashage, Matt, the parachutes have been a problem, but it seems like there were one or two others. Should we go through them? Mm-hmm. The underperforming electronics in the Russian lander. Mm. European flight software. And what about dodgy glue on the solar panels? I mean, yeah, sure, we talked about that. surely... It's not as easy as someone just applying Prit stick to some solar panels, is it? I would imagine not. Do you think it's more, more technical than that? A whole bunch of problems. This is what the wonderful Dmitry Rogozin said. Ah, oh, yes, DR. He said, we have made the difficult but well-awaited decision to postpone the launch to 2022. It is driven primarily by the need to maximise the robustness of all ExoMars systems. Is this related to coronavirus? This is related to coronavirus, Matt. Here we go. Some words from Jan Werner. Because people from different places of industry in Russia, in Italy and France cannot move easily as in the past, so therefore is also an impact. But I would not like to say the coronavirus is one and only reason, but it has an impact on the mission, yes? So sorry, that was the, that was the worst accent I've ever done. I didn't think my Dmitry Rogozin was particularly good either, ah, Jamie. We'd we obviously to work it's on just that. it's Friday the thirteenth. Friday the thirteenth. We're not pulling it off. Not, uh, yeah, so no. that that's very disappointing. And so uh, yeah, coronavirus has actually um, stepped in here and put the final nail in the coffin of yes. the Franklin Rover being launched in twenty twenty. Uh, and of course, this is a bit of a blow for the UK because we're the second biggest partner of the entire endeavour. Yeah, right. But uh, NASA obviously named their Mars twenty twenty rover Perseverance in the in the in the last week, and that's still on track. As is the Chinese Perseverance. Uh, Mars well, that's a, that's a very apt word for for us all this week, I'm isn't it? Perseverance. Gutted it. I'm gutted it wasn't called the Russell though. Because how else would it have been having Russell and Franklin on the... Oh, well, it's got to happen one day, surely. It will happen. It will happen. I hope that the Franklin rover visits the Russell crater on Mars. Oh, it's it's going to happen. It's inevitable. So, Jamie, I saw an incredible picture um, by Joshua Stevens, these images were from. And he's used modified Copernicus Sentinel-5P, the ESA satellite, and processed them so that you can see the effects of coronavirus from space. (laughs) And it is actually quite remarkable. This instrument on Copernicus Sentinel-5P is called the tropomy, 
which sounds like a Studio Ghibli film, but it's not. It's an instrument that uh, detects nitrogen dioxide, which, of course, comes out of car exhaust, power plants, and all those kind of industrial yes. facilities. And what it's found is that those you can actually track the NO2 and that he's got a picture in January pre-quarantine. And, of course, everyone's going to work and driving around and everything's working. And then in February, after their super unprecedented draconian quarantine, mm. the likes of which the world has never seen before. Mm. And the air quality has increased massively there and all the NO2 has dropped. So you can clearly see the effect on China of nitrogen wow. dioxide disappearing from the atmosphere because uh, everyone's in quarantine. I think throughout all of this, we're learning some lessons, aren't we? I think that we should take some stuff from this. Oh, yes, big time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, th I, think, I think the really big one is that I think this, this pandemic will pan out to not be quite, well, it's, it's awful, but it's not going to be as the worst case scenario. And hopefully it's a good warning shot about what could be the worst case scenario. But let's move on, Jamie. Let's not wallow in those uh, Matt, things. I, li I liked one I saw on Twitter earlier where someone was saying, finally, you'll understand that we don't need so many face-to-face -face meetings and that an email will just do. <laughs> Quite like that. Quite I like do that. like that. I don't like emails. I'd, I'd rather have Although, a phone yeah, should call, we just though. say, yeah, should we just say, phone calls. Just, just let's phone just get calls. on the phone. Just get on the just phone. Just get on the phone. Yeah. Although I do, I do like going up to the office above my office to talk to people. You get so much more done. Yeah. But but I know what you mean. It's like, why are you flying over to America to do stuff? I mean, let's not talk about what we did this week. It's absolutely ludicrous. Well, I had to go to the Star. <laughs> I had to go to the Star Wars exhibition at Disneyland. That's why. <laughs> oh, okay. That's fair enough. You know? Yeah, that's important. So, do you want to hear my space word of the week, Jamie? Yeah, go on then. Virus. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So what is a virus? I thought we'd better clear this up first. It's a small infectious agent that is too small to be seen by light microscopy and is able to multiply only within the living cells of a host. Holy moly. Or to put it another way, it's a sub-microscopic infectious organism. It's really actually quite fascinating because they're not really alive because they require the host to actually do all the work for them so they're, they're mm. kind of just a small little ball that contains either dna or rna depending on the virus type that's got its uh, genome in and it, it kind of lands on a host cell and that host cell does all the reproducing of that dna or rna uh replicating i should say so it isn't really alive, but but the amazing thing is just how small it is. So I did a little calculation. Matt, just to, on, on... just before you before you go into your calculations, do you know what the irony is? Is that it's kind of like me and you because I'm the virus and you're the host that does all the work. <laughs> I yeah, mean, that, I, I, that is I do so fit... true, isn't it? Yeah, and you give me a headache, and I so... give you a headache, and. You're the one that does all the reproducing. So That's true. This mm. is so mm. true. Sorry, yeah, mate, carry on. Yeah, no, no. So if you get so this is the thing. They're they're tiny. They're so tiny, it's unbelievable. So uh if Earth was a small virus, then yeah. the moon would only be a little bit bigger than a plutonium atom. Oof. The sun would be the size of a bacteria, 
And this is the this is the incredible bit. The distance to Mars would only be about the width of a grain of flour. So you a can imagine a grain <laughs> of flour. I mean, it's just insane, isn't it? Just think about that. The distance to Mars mm. is the size of flour if Earth was the size of a virus. I mean, yeah, that is it, tiny. It, you suddenly realise that this thing is so tiny. They're orders of magnitude smaller than bacteria. So when you see viruses attacking bacteria, which has its own special name, a bacteriophage, um, mm. basically the, the, the biggest war going on in the world is always between viruses and bacteria. Yes. They're just all that you know. It's viruses trying their best to to uh, use bacteria as the host to uh, to to multiply their genome everywhere. Mm. Do you know what you call a virus outside of its host? Um, I don't know. It is called a virion. Oh, so yes, the virus is is really yeah when it's all started got going in your in your system. But the little tiny particles of virus are virions, and they're these, and they're they're contained in a little shell called a capsid. So you've got this little shell, and some of them have got a little fatty outside as well. Those ones are actually slightly easier to get rid of because uh, they need that fatty surface to uh, survive. But you know, right. wiping it, wiping it down, and all that sort of stuff. They're easier to kill, whereas the sort of hard shell ones can live in the ground, like anthrax and stuff like that, for centuries. Um, so yeah, yeah. So it's you, you. You have to kind of know. There's five thousand types described in detail, and millions of viruses out in the wild. So yes, it's. So we can't bio- even bury these things. Well, some you can, some you can't. I mean, they're all mm. different shapes as well. Some are dodecahedrons, spheres, uh, cylinders. They're really quite incredible. I mean, they've only been really people have only been able to see them since the 1930s using electron microscopes. You can't see them under a microscope because the wavelength of visible light is just too big mm. to actually see the goddamn thing. So you have to use electron microscopes to see them, and uh, and since then it's like. Wow. I mean, they were discovered at the very last part of the 19th century. Which is impressive in itself, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's when you realise just how tiny these things are, how how really that they're not living, that they're just, they're just tiny little shells of genetic material. Matt, it's no wonder that people eons ago would just think of superstitious reasons for thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deaths. You know, why is everyone dying from something invisible? Why well, is everyone be, dying? It's got to be Thor. Yeah, well, it's kind of one of the best explanations about why spending money on science is better than just trying to spend money on starving people. Hmm. It's like, why are you spending money on science when there's all the people dying? It's, well, if, if the people are dying from a virus, but we don't even know about viruses because we haven't given experimental scientists any money it's only through experimental science do we know about these things it's very important here, here. here's the thing where did viruses come from jamie where did viruses come from and we had this big long chat with old bobby z of course when he when we had him on talking about panspermia papa z now a quite a famous um letter once was published in the lancet by a guy mm. called chandra wickramansing wow 
And he's a Sri Lankan-born British mathematician who worked with Fred Hoyle, hmm. the great Fred Hoyle. And they wrote a book in 1979 called Diseases from Space. It's a seminal work. Uh, he was saying in this letter to The Lancet that SARS, and the letter was called SARS, a clue to its origin. Now, SARS, of course, is a coronavirus. It's um, very similar to what's going around at the moment. Mm. And he speculated that it came from space, and he, and he laid out all the evidence that this thing came from space. Um, but it has to be said it didn't take long for people to write in lots of uh, very detailed letters as to why it was probably a silly idea. But panspermia is very popular, Jamie, with a whole brand of scientists. Including me. Yeah, you, Sagan, Crick. The top three, surely. <laughs> Franklin, Sagan, Crick. Well, yeah. I, don't know how, I don't know how you get much bigger than that. What an um, absolute... I mean, formidable trio, that is. Yeah, and loads of other scientists with impeccable credentials. I have to say, I'm pretty unconvinced, but I am very excited to be proved wrong on it, as in I love the idea. I think Don't you worry, I think we'll prove you wrong. The one, th one episode of Star Trek that I did actually enjoy once is Picard discovers, because there's always that thing, as, oh, why do all the Vulcans, Romulans and Klingons and all that like look like humans? It hmm. turns out that there had been a previous species that had used directed panspermia to seed oh. all the different star systems and so that we were all related, that they were all humanoid species related to this kind of seeding by a, pre by a previous uh, creature, by a Whoa. previous ultra-intelligence. Well, Matt, talking of ultra-intelligence, would you like mm -hmm. to know how viruses behave in space? Oh, yes. I tell you, this is so interesting. Have you ever had chicken pox, Matt? I have had chicken pox. Oh, so if you have, mm -hmm. then uh, you know what you've had, don't you? Is it the varicella zoster virus? You got it in one. VZV. Yes. VZV. And, Matt, it's never fully eliminated from your body, but your immune system keeps them in, in a kind of jail. In your spinal cord. So they're still there, Matt. Yeah, in the ganglions <clears throat> of your nerves. Yeah, so when you said, have you ever had chicken pox? Yeah. If you've had it, you, you've still got it. It's, do you have chicken pox? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you get this, even though they're being kept in jail, of course, sometimes they escape. And on the whole, in fact, it happens quite often. They escape, the immune system uh, gets them all back again and, pops them back in jail and says, you stay here. And But if you get very stressed and your immune system starts to fail, then obviously there's a major jailbreak. Do you know what happens then? Well, I think it's shingles, isn't it, in adults? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you've had chicken pox as a child, often that's expressed as shingles. Same virus, it's the exact same virus that you caught as a child, but yeah, it makes you shingles. Stuff. Very serious. So here's a really interesting point is that NASA do a lot of work on this because latent, of course, astronauts going up to space have loads of latent viruses inside them. And what they do is that they test astronauts' immune systems and discover that a lot of these latent viruses become active again while you're up in space. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, that that is just a really strong sign that the astronaut's immune system is under stress. 
Sure. And of so, what, it is, so yeah. yeah. So, what is what is the stress from the space environment? So, as far as I can make out, you kind of got like four major factors. I would have thought you've got microgravity that Tick. can't be. So that that must affect your immune system. It, it affects loads of other sort of biological processes mm. in your body. Radiation. I mean, oh, that yeah. must be that must properly be damaging your immune system. Massively. You've got that. You've got your G forces of takeoff and landing. Obviously, that's just like you know, it, it's not particularly great for you. But you've also got this. It's you know, it's not a natural um, situation to be in a capsule. It's right. It's stress, However it's calm it's the astronaut yeah. is, and let's face it, that's why they get picked. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. Uh, aside from all of their talents, it's because they can be calm and handle and handle that stress, but. It's still going to be stressful on the inside, isn't it? Oh, it's very stressful. It's very stressful. And if you think about this, it's like you, you, the last thing you need is your astronauts breaking out in things like shingles and stuff like that. So imagine how, how important this is for journeys to Mars and colonies on the moon and Mars. Um, and one of the things that people talk about is like, well, you just have a vaccine. But vaccines would be perfect, but they're not easy. So, oh, hmm. so the chickenpox virus is a type of herpes, and there's eight human herpes viruses, and only chickenpox actually has a vaccination. The other seven, there's there's no vaccine. Even now, there's no vaccination for something that occurs on Earth that we've known about for many decades. Hmm. Um, so, really, the only thing they can do is mon monitor virus reactivation and treat it on a sort of case by case, day by day kind of targeted treatments how is so, your herpes by the way matt is it clearing up <laughs> well like i said well, i've got chicken pox haven't i so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. still got it and mm. actually herpes i think cold sores are a herpes as well aren't they oh yeah there's a whole bunch of them jamie and once you've got them you've got them um oh, God. now this is this is really um this is quite cool and very relevant as well so there's a uh, Dr. Satish K. Mehta at NASA's Johnson Space Center actually has developed this way of checking for virus reactivation, uh, a process for rapid viral detection. And, of course, this currently has unbelievable clinical relevance to here on Earth. Another example Damn, of, of why, why it's worth spending money on spaceflight development. Because, of course, yes, rapid viral detection in saliva is uh, being employed right now all around the world or not enough in this country by the sounds of it but mm. it's um it certainly has been huge in other countries like korea but uh, yeah how about wow. that so yeah, so yet yet another reason to spend money on on space and space exploration and experimental science i, I well, Matt, it's yes let me ask you a question what if the the crew all get sick what if everyone gets sick? Oh man, it, I, yeah, I don't know how you'd avoid it either. Because for I example, mean, because they 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 undergo quarantine before they fly. I mean, that's everyone, right? They do, but when you when you read about the quarantine, it's not particularly, it's not particularly draconian. Like it, it's only it, you, it's only seven days before launch, NASA. So mm. you, you you get put into quarantine, and even then family members and support personnel can come in and out. So that, like, you're still exposed to about 40 or 50 people. Yeah, not and it's, really so quarantine, it's not, so is it's it? not particularly strict at the moment. That I think they are looking at that and would up it, like, double 
the quarantine time for Mars. But this all goes back. This all goes back to Apollo 7. And we talked about it when we, I think... Ah, uh, Wally, Wally Shearer. Yeah, when Wally Shearer was our um, astronaut of the week. And he mm. got very bad tempered because he had a cold on Apollo 7, which he gave to all the others as well. And they wouldn't wear their helmets when they came back into... When they came... Uh, back in for re-entry because of course they're all mm. snotty same with apollo 8 same with apollo 9 and it was like right we've got to do something about this um so yeah it's it not only that jamie like the lack of gravity actually makes viruses much easier to catch so something like this coronavirus mm. for example it's in little droplets of fluid and of course if you sneeze in, in on the international space station it doesn't drop down it doesn't it doesn't settle it just mm. floats in the atmosphere. It just means that you can walk into a into a cloud yeah. of, of bacteria. God I mean, every damn, every yeah. sneeze con contains billions of these little things. So you're just walking into. You, you wouldn't be able to see it, but you'd be walking into it. So yeah, it'd be game over, wouldn't it? Yeah, the US segment of the ISS has a high efficiency particulate air filter. And they obviously wipe down surfaces and uh, there's microbial monitoring. But I don't think microbial monitoring doesn't go down to this virus level. And I don't even think that the high efficiency particulate filter would actually filter out small viruses. You're stuck in a, an environment that's incredibly difficult to control. So you might be able to send someone who's sick to their sort of sleeping quarters. Or mm. I guess the worst case scenario is to stick them in a spacesuit. But yeah. I, can, I can see all sorts of issues with that, obviously. God, that is mad. I haven't thought about that before. You may have caught your chicken pox as a three-year-old. Then you go up as a 30-year-old on a long-duration mission, only for, your, only for you to become infectious again. Hmm. Actually, I mean, I don't know about that. I don't know whether you, when, when you've got shingles, you are infectious. But I'm sure there are reactivated viruses that do become infectious. Um, I'd actually quite like someone from, from out there in Spodcat world to let me know if that's indeed true. Bob, if you're listening, yeah. is that true? Let us know. So, Matt, what about quarantine after space missions? Well, as you know, when the Apollo astronaut, they had to spend three weeks in an Airstream Three trailer, weeks. a converted, yeah, um, with Nixon waving through the window at them. <laughs> that must have been so, bizarre. Look, there's the president. So, yeah. But it got dropped after Apollo 14. They realised, of course, the moon was just a total barren, lifeless, mm. no biological entities there at all. They were a little bit paranoid because it was an interesting time. It was the late 60s. Everyone was convinced we were winning the war against infectious diseases. Vaccines had been incredibly successful, as had antibiotics and things like that. So it was like, yes, we've, we're, we're conquering it. It was a beautiful yeah. time to be alive. But everyone started to realise antibiotics start to fail after a while. And if you're exposed to novel diseases, which you've got no vaccine for or no immunity to, it will kill you, basically. Hmm. So everyone starts to get paranoid about those sort of things. So, so of course, a virus from space is uh, very scary. I, I mean, can you imagine if the virus that we're talking about today st didn't start in a wet market in China but started in a space capsule? You imagine yeah. if, China, if China went to the moon and the epicenter of this new virus that was going around now came from a space capsule. I mean, we, we yeah. would all be very scared then, wouldn't we? That would be scary, yeah. The quarantine from the moon, actually, although they took it 
very seriously and spent lots of money, it actually was pretty much a failure. So this was in the National Academy's press. They were, uh, a report was basically saying what a complete and utter failure the quarantine programme would have to be judged because it, yeah. it complicated uh, looking at moon rocks, yet at the same time wouldn't have worked if there had have been lethal microorganisms in it. This is so, it. Well, because, yeah, you would have had the Pacific Ocean definitely would have been infected straight away when the capsule landing. And Houston. And, and Houston, Texas, yeah, would have been. It, it, it just, they, 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 even though they sort of, it was almost like they tried, but really because of all the rush, Kennedy's, we've got to get it done by the end of the decade. They really hadn't thought through a lot of the things. They'd made some things too complicated. So, yeah, there was quite a few lessons to be learned from that there particular were thing. one or two. So, of course, you know, there's much more chance of bringing something back from Mars. That's actually not beyond the realms of believability, is it? Very true. Yeah, scary thought again. So what, this is going to end on a positive note, Matt. Yeah, well, yeah. So one, <laughs> so one of the ideas that I, I read that I thought was quite interesting is that Mars... Uh, rock returns might go to say a moon uh, facility first like you bring it back to somewhere like the moon so that you maintain earth's integrity the worst case scenario is that you wipe out just your moon colony rather than the whole of earth yes hmm but uh, yeah and basically if you're going to have a quarantine style situation Everyone has to take it extremely serious. If you, i.e., if anyone's thinking, ah, what's, what's the likelihoods of there being, uh, you know, deadly organisms in the Mars soil? If anyone working in your, in, uh, as part of your personnel in quarantine is thinking that, it's highly likely that's where a breach will be because you have to take it deadly serious. You have yeah, to you follow totally it. do. You have to follow it to the letter and make no mistakes. It's like so. It's a lot of it is down to a lot of it is down to the kind of psychological element of the people actually doing the work, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's you, you've got to get a quarantine facility right. So uh, astronauts returning from Mars. And even astronauts going to Mars, I mean, do we scrub them down from Earth-based viruses so that they don't go to Mars? Because one of the other things that's very interesting is how things like salmonella and bacteria and things like that actually get more, very much more virulent um, in space. Yeah, this is the thing. Radiation and stuff like that actually makes these bacteria stronger. So if that was happening to viruses as well, that's literally pretty bad news, isn't it? It is bad, especially because, Matt, I mean, on Mars, you're not really going to have the same setup to help a sick person, are you? No. Um, so you've got to be extra, extra careful. It's quite hard for a virus to jump across to, to, some, to an, an organism that doesn't come from its home planet, let alone its, um, you know, nearby environment mm. and it's, this is all down to the fact that the, just the way they work these virion tiny little bits of rna or dna covered in a little shell they land on your cell 
and they require certain receptors on the cell wall to actually allow the virus to inject its RNA and DNA into your cell for it to work. And that's known as a host range. So what host organisms can actually be used by the virus? And, of course, this host range will be drastically reduced if you're talking about different planets, presumably, unless, of course, panspermia has a lot of truth about it. And if panspermia has a lot of truth about it, if viruses themselves came from Mars and and maybe even life on Earth was seeded uh, from Mars or vice versa, then it's um it's 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 a probability you know there's a probability there isn't there as the beach boys once said if mars had life on it i think i'd find my wife on it oh but hopefully that doesn't mean a virus <laughs> yeah if wife yeah. means agonizing death through unusual circumstances <laughs> yeah it's an acronym Yes. I don't know what yet. I haven't done the interview yet. This is I've got to do this immediately after, after mm. our ch- talk now. I'm going to be talking to Cameron Edwards, who is a young British chief executive officer at Dragon Aerospace Systems. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. It's another launch vehicle here in the UK. So I shall be speaking to him and putting, dropping it in. And hopefully we'll get this podcast out today. Uh, try and get it out on a Friday. Always try and get it out on a Friday. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. So I'm here with uh, Cameron Edwards, who is the CEO of Dragon Aerospace. Uh, welcome to the show, Cameron. How are you? Hello. It's nice to be here. Thanks. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, how are you? I'm very well. That The sun is shining here in Devon. Whereabouts are you? Cardiff. It's yeah, it's quite sunny actually for a change. Oh, oh wow! Oh, wow. I could, I can, I can actually stand at the top of my road and and see over to you. Uh, so, yeah. Wow! So if you can see the other side, if you can see the other side of the Bristol Channel, there I am waving. Uh, so um, uh, yeah. So uh, tell us first of all, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming CEO at, at Dragon Aerospace. <laughs> okay. So well, I'm 18. So just to say that, so I haven't actually had a long time, like I haven't had a job um, in this this field. I I dropped out of university to do this. It it was sort of um, a passion of mine. So throughout, you know, um, secondary school and, and sixth form college, I was always interested in rocket science. I used to build my own engines, rockets, I'd launch them. And yeah, I, you know, countless days just staring at a sunny like sky just thinking oh i really want to launch some rockets now um and yeah it came to me going to university i i was studying business and um i just thought i'd rather not be doing this <laughs> i'd rather be building you know rockets and and you know i was inspired by spacex with the falcon 9 and jeff bezos so i thought there isn't really, you know, at the time I hadn't heard of many space companies in Europe or Britain. And I thought, well, there needs to be a company trying to do that stuff. And I thought, go for it. And uh, yeah, that's when I dropped out of university and um, started the company. So, yeah. So so who else is involved with you? Presumably you're just not, you're not a one-man operation here. No, no. Um, so we've got a director of operations who's uh, called Pete Hopkins. He's... Um, ex ex navy uh he used to 
you know, be on the team of developing um, guided missiles and things like that. Uh, he was a nuclear sub, uh, submariner, things like that. So he, he is a good, good team member, and yeah, he's a real, real value to to the company. And um, yeah, we've been working on a lot of stuff together with his knowledge of sort of the engineering side and the manufacturing side, and then my sort of knowledge of just like rocket propulsion and and and, and all like sort of the detailed stuff. Uh, so yeah, we, we work well together. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're young enough where you really have truly grown up in the era of Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos as as yeah. your kind of rocket heroes. That's that's actually nuts. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Watching the Falcon Heavy land on the drone ship in I think 2014 was that was when I thought mm, I really want to get into this. It was mm. so inspiring just to see it see, see it land and, and just to show what's possible. Yeah, it's no, amazing. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I've been caught up on this wave. Obviously, I'm a lot older, but I do feel as though that there's been this brilliant space uh, renaissance, as it were, in, yeah. the last, in the last few years. And, and that's kind of reignited my passion that had laid dormant. I'd been working in the music industry. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it's really interesting I, that, yeah, you would have been very, very young growing through this kind of renaissance. Did, did you, you yeah. yourself notice the renaissance even as a because presumably you'd have been very young so or was it you were just caught up in it and then later found out oh this really is a thing i'm very sort of passionate about um sort of science and britain's sort of involvement so in the 70s and stuff with the black arrow and, and the concord and all, all of those amazing things that we, we've done I, I i'm immensely sort of proud of that and then I saw all of these sort of American companies starting up and it sort of made me think we're kind of missing out on the sort of massive opportunity. Um, so I was annoyed when, when the Black Arrow was cancelled in, in the 70s. Reading up about that, I thought it was crazy. And um, that's kind of why I want to do it is because I think Britain should be at the forefront of, you know, space exploration. I think that you know, we need to be doing this. Um, and yeah, we don't want to give up the opportunity because it's, I think it's a second space race. That's what everyone's been saying. Uh, the second space race. So yeah, I think um, we need to really be a part of that. Obviously you've got cultural barriers. It would seem to me that there's something, uh, sort of in the modern culture of post-war Britain, that mm. sort of runs against you as opposed to post-war America that runs for you on something like this kind of uh, venture? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's all of the... It's the same business uh, on the side of business. You know, in um, I read a book called Zero to One, which is um, written by, I think, Peter Thale, who was part of the PayPal Mafia uh, with Elon Musk. Um, he wrote this book, Zero to One, which is a really good business book. It's short, but it's about innovation, and it's about different countries and their attitudes towards innovation. So America is very optimistic and is willing to put a lot of capital behind projects. And to America's failure is, is, a, growing, is a growing an opportunity to grow and learn. But in Britain, we are, I hate to say the word, but the word he uses is pessimistic. We're very pessimistic and we want to focus on sort of globalization, i.e. doing what we already know because we know it works. Whereas America's more going from zero to one, which is what the book's about, is going from nothing to one, which is innovation. So we want to go to innovation, um, well, America does, but Britain's more about globalization. And it's very difficult to sort of 
it's, it's why it's difficult for rocket startups in Europe and Britain especially is because we don't have the same attitude as in America. And that's why I think uh, we need to sort of shift that. But it, it's very difficult to shift. It's, it's in all aspects of business. Anything to do with business is the same. Um, you know, there's, that's the reason why venture capitalists in, in America, it's much more rife in America. You know, you've got Silicon Valley, loads of startups going, loads of investment. But in this country, it's, it's a lot more reserved and a bit more slow paced and a bit more cautious. And, and it's just the two different ways of countries really going up uh, about it. So, yeah. I just hope it changes because we need innovation. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I know this is probably going to be highly contentious and very speculative, but do you yeah. think a, a post-Brexit Britain, it, do you think that that's the one opportunity we really should be grasping then? Is this is a, an opportunity to shed that slightly pessimistic uh, European, I guess? I mean, I don't know the Europeans are particularly bad at it, but is, but is, it, is it an opportunity? It's... It's it's not it's not really Euro- European as such. It's I think it's a mainly a British thing. I, I think Europe's similar to us, but I, I think in the book as well he has sort of a, a graph of where the different countries are in terms of investment and these things. And I think European um, sort of the whole Europe is sort of similar to Britain, but I think Britain's one of the sort of least optimistic <laughs> countries. It sounds dark to say, but it, it's kind of the attitude, and it's. I wouldn't say there's much wrong with it. It's just it stops innovation. Um, and I think with Brexit happening, I hate to get political, but it's it would be stupid not to use it as an opportunity. There's no point in, uh, you know, what's done is done. We need to sort of get on and make the most of what we've got. And I hmm. think we, we could potentially see a bit more um, sort of push towards investment and, and innovation by leaving the EU. I mean, uh, there's the opportunity for that, but it's where the, the government it, and, yeah. and it actually happens. It's, it's yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, yeah, no, I, th- I think that's the perfect answer, isn't it? I suppose it's, there's a, there's an opportunity, but you know, yeah. we, we can't tell whether that's going to happen or not. So yeah, you've got, exactly. you've, you've got this big road ahead of you. I, I, I love the optimism, you know, yeah. I, you know, cause obviously I've spent some, I spent a lot of time in the, in the company of, of Alan Bond, for example. Okay. And I, you know, he's, he's spent his whole life <laughs> working against exactly what you've just been talking about. The, the yeah. kind of British uh, pessimism. And, yeah. and, and obviously he never, I don't think he achieved what he, he could have achieved uh, had he been an American. So, mm. uh, does, does, uh, presumably, I don't want to be a, a, a bastard. Does, does that daunt you a little bit? That that kind of aspect of it, or do you? I mean, I suppose you're doing something that you love uh, is mm. the minimum. So, but mm. would, do, would you ever consider right upping sticks and going right? I'm 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 off to America because that's where I can see my future. Uh, that's the thing. Um... We wouldn't be against doing anything like collaborations with American companies or launching it in America, but we really, really do want to keep it British. We we really want to make it so that this country is is part of that. Um, and I think it'd be a shame just to go to America and then become an American company, and and sort of that, that sort of defeats the point of why we started. Because there's loads of companies in America doing rockets, um, and I really think that. Britain needs to have its own thing, and, and Europe as well. I think mm. it would be silly to take all of the research and stuff out of out of Europe because 
that's why I set it up is to to be British and to be European. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really inspirational. I'm, I'm I'm actually really super happy that people like you are are, are, are thinking like this. I, I genuinely, I, I, and I genuinely do think that. And I think it was really, really cool, wasn't it? When when we were doing our little space conference last week, yeah. where right at the end of it, you almost had a little bidding war between lots of <laughs> lots of various people yeah. who were who were suddenly very interested in what you do. So yeah, yeah t- tell us a little bit about Dragon Aerospace and and, and the kind of some of the timelines that you see there. So we expect within about three years to have a standing rocket fully operational, so a suborbital research vehicle. And um, we really, it, it's not like we're in America where there is a massive desert that you can go to, you can launch and you can use loads of money on a massive recovery crew. And it, it, it's not like that in this country. In, in this country, to do anything, it's kind of, you have to minimize the cost and do everything efficiently so i read a statistic that said that if you launch 100 kilometers which is common line in space above the united kingdom or above any country there is up to a thousand kilometer radius around which it can fall i think it's a thousand or is it i'm not sure but there's a there's a significant radius around where you've launched where it can land Mm. And that is ridiculous because it means that you can't launch pretty much anywhere from from the UK because with that fall radius, it could land on London, it could land on a city, it could land anywhere. So to really actually make launching from the UK possible, you need to be able to recover the vehicle within an accurate distance around where you launched it. Otherwise, it's pretty much impossible. And the lead times on on launching, because you'd have to have a massive facility in the middle of pretty much nowhere, it's 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 not practical. So really, from the outset, Dragon Aerospace is trying to make the rocket able to launch from the United Kingdom, land in the United Kingdom, and basically become be a very efficient vehicle. What we're saying is, we want the Falcon Nine of suborbital rockets, basically, you know, reusable, uh, cost effective, and very advanced in how it operates. Basically, that's and- what we're going for. <clears throat> And would it, would you would it be a clone of the Falcon Nine, or have you got your own interesting ideas of how you would achieve? No, it's it's completely different from the Falcon Nine. Um, we just use that comparison because the, the, every rocket, I think, in the next twenty years will will push for reusability. I think it would be silly, really silly, in the next well, any new rocket starting up to not be reusable because. You know, you look at the cost reductions of SpaceX, it, it's crazy. And I think if any country wants to compete in the space market, you need to have a reusable vehicle. And, and that's not refurbishable, that's fully reusable. And I think, although we don't have a truly fully reusable vehicle yet without refurbishment, I think we're on our way to it. And I think that will, that will be the... If you can crack that, that's, that's what will reduce the cost of space dramatically. Mm. I think. So, can you let us into the, like, like any kind of some some hint at the design of your of, of of how you return safely back to the ground? All I'll say is guided missiles. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's all. That's all I'll say because we are going to patent this, um, and we're in the process of doing so. So, I wouldn't want to speak <laughs> about <laughs> okay, it. Okay, yeah, but but yeah, um, propulsive landing. It's for a suborbital vehicle, it's not really feasible, um, just because of the difficulty in doing it. 
um, it's much easier to recover it by other means. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, well that, that's that, that's that's super interesting. I mean, it'd be really interesting to see all the different types of re- reusability coming in. I mean, yeah. The I mean, I see. I see. I was a super space enthusiastic at the same time as you. Yeah. Uh, when when the shuttle was uh, sort of came mm. on came online, mm. Mm. Um, and of course the space shuttle in some ways gave reusability a bit of a kind of dirty word. It just it, it just didn't yeah. just didn't work out. The space shuttle is that kind of thing that it's like yes, it's an awesome engineering task, but it's terrible. Like it's a terrible rocket, <laughs> <laughs> and people have got me for saying that, but it is. It wasn't. It didn't do what it was set out to do. It was, well, it had obviously the tragic disasters that happened. It had all of that with it. It's just looking back on it, it it was a terrible idea. But it was an amazing engineering task. The engineering it was out of this world. Literally, it was amazing. And you know, I, I admire it for that. But but down to what it actually. The purpose it served, I, I don't like it really. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. It, was, it wasn't good at all. No, I no. I mean, the the Baran bizarrely was actually quite a bit better as far as I can make out. But hey. yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I was more like just hinting about that thing that that reusability has been talked about for a very long time, mm. and yeah. and it's and it, and it's obviously just a, a lot harder than. Then it, it just seems. then you're just saying it, you know. It's it's like yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at the von Braun era, um, when he gave the presentation on the shuttle, well, his design of a shuttle, it was completely different because the shuttle was on the top of the rocket, not attached to the side, and it was you know it looked all stainless steel and stuff. Um, mm. It wasn't anything like it. And if you look at the concept images of the refurbishment of the space shuttle. Uh, I don't know if I can find the image, but it's basically a space shuttle with a couple of people around it, a couple of you know, small trucks doing some servicing on it. That's all it was. But if you look at the actual pictures of it being refurbished, it's a whole factory that's needed to refurbish these 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 rockets. And uh, um, you know, they dramatically over. They were way too optimistic, actually, about what they could do with it. And I think, yeah, it it didn't do what it was sort of set out to do which is a shame yeah no. yeah yeah absolutely um i mean so you're you're pressing ahead with uh with 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 doing this i mean how, yeah. what, what, how would you encourage other people who wanted to step in and doing doing what you've done because it because it can't it can't be as easy as just dropping out of college and going right i'm just going to set up a rocket company <laughs> uh you could do that, but it's very difficult. <laughs> very difficult. Um, so I won the Wells Technology Awards nearly a year ago, which gave me a couple of thousand in funding to start, you know, prototyping and things like that. But it, that's nowhere near enough for anything really. Um, but that sort of was the seed at which it was like, oh, I can actually do this if I work hard. Um and then it's a matter of finding good people. I think if you can get a good team member, such as Peter Hopkins, who is our director of operations, um, it's you, you need people. You can have as much money as you want, but people are the key to everything. You know, it, once you have a team uh, of people, 
you're much, much, much more likely to succeed. I mean, it's the same in any other business. Is if you know most sole businesses fail, but it's some. I don't know what the number is, but it's you're you're significantly more likely to succeed with two people on board than you are with one. Significantly, mm. so it's about getting a good team together and um, finding a niche. I think so. Our niche is suborbital vehicles in the United Kingdom that are reusable and yeah advanced that's because that there isn't really an advanced sounding rocket out there that there's stuff universities have made there's the black branch series there's the uk one that was discontinued in the 2000s but yeah you need you need a sort of a unique field there's you know there's no point in going to america and doing a um small sat launch stuff because it's it's done it's you know you've got um companies doing that so but in Europe, actually, I think there is a lot of room for sort of satellite research and um, small sat launches, I think. Because um, if you think about it, it's, it's more of a defense point of view. So if a country, I think countries need small sats because, you know, the rapid launch time, I think launching quickly is key. And I think that that will be one of the big drivers of, of like investment in companies is the defense, I think. Mm. So um, I think it's Astra Space in America. They're a stealth startup company, and they're launching small sats. And basically, it's kind of like government funded. It's so that they can literally have a lead time of a week and launch a satellite, launch multiple satellites. So I think that's probably where there's a lot of demand as well. I think if, if for defence purposes. Yeah, I mean, actually, you're, you're you are stepping into quite a bit of rich heritage in the British sounding rocket aren't you i mean that it was the sky mm. it's the skylark isn't it it's, I, yeah and presumably yeah. The, i think the skylark is the most successful sounding rocket ever <laughs> it's like i'd it's say a, it's it's on par with the black brunt yeah yeah because black brunt's still still going isn't still it? still going right yeah i mean yeah it's, 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 it's over 400 launches though isn't it so that's yeah it's yeah. crazy so it? it's, yeah um, yeah it's, it's amazing rockets um yeah, so <laughs> So what 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 are you looking forward to out out there in the in the sort of wider rocket world? What are the things that are really exciting you at the moment? Oh, I am excited by SpaceX. I mean, that's just a generic answer because everyone <laughs> says SpaceX. But but in terms of the engineering side, the, the rate at which they are advancing with the um, the uh, Starship. Well, what was the B- yeah the Starship? But what yeah. was the BFR? Um, yeah, I'm excited. I mean, you, if you see the rapid testing they've done, it's you know they're literally build they're designing it literally whilst it's being built where it'll launch. It's it's crazy how fast it, they're doing this, and I think that is the way forward. If if you want to get to Mars and stuff, that is the way to do it. Yeah, um, I mean. I- I'm going to ask you a question to to to, to put a juxtaposition to you because the mm. way I see it, I know how I'm seeing it, but I want I, I wonder if you're going to put a fresh perspective on this. Yeah. I'm watching Elon Musk building Starship, uh, this absolutely enormous uh, yeah. rocket, and and he's doing it out in the open, just bashing bits of stainless steel together. Yeah. He's got minimal funding really for something like that, and then yeah. you've got the recent report about SLS that's now. 43% over budget and still yeah. isn't going to be flying. Yeah. Uh, what you've just said there in terms of how Elon Musk 
<laughs> is doing it right. Mm. What what do you therefore say about what NASA and uh, and the contractors are doing that's wrong? Oh, that is a massive topic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the fundamentals of why there's a new space race. I think um, governments are slow. They are willing to put billions behind a project and there's a lot they're they're slow because they're naturally slow in anything they are slow government is slow that's how it works but i think they're slow but they do it right so they'll get there in the end but they'll spend a bunch of money doing it but because they're a government it's kind of like they've got the money whereas you have these two different fields of rocket science i think you have governments government rocket programs, and then you have private rocket programs. They're completely separate things. They have virtually no similarities. They're different different whole structures. And I think that government will be government. I don't think it can change from being being like that. It, it will always be slow because it is you know, public money that there's all of that process to go through. But then you have private companies such as SpaceX who are doing, literally building the rocket on the launch pad with Starship. And I think governments are doing it wrong, is, as in that they are slow. They can speed up. They, they're very stuck in their ways, I think. You know, it's, it's crazy how they haven't gone on to reusable stuff. But, but there isn't a drive for it because they have loads of money. It's kind of like, why would we bother to develop a whole new system that makes it reusable when we can just stick to throwing the rocket away and just getting more money for it in the end? I mean... Yeah, um, but I mean, isn't that isn't that scary for people like Boeing and Lockheed, for example, who, 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 oh, yeah, who, who get these? Them. Yeah, you, you you get these enormous government contracts, and then mm. some some joker comes along and and, yeah. and and builds a much more capable rocket. Yeah, and surely that's just just hugely embarrassing. Well, well, the I mentioned it at the space talk. There was like three thousand suppliers of different suppliers of parts for like the SLS three thousand. That's that's an insane amount because all of the all of those materials have to be transported. All of those people have to be communicated with to make sure all the parts work together. When you come to assembling, you have to figure out how all the different systems work, how it all comes together into the rocket, and and then you have to have like all the inspections and stuff by different teams to make sure it. It's just so much more complicated and so much sort of slower than SpaceX, who produced over 80% of their stuff in-house under one roof. I think it's, it's, it's exactly like the Model T Ford. You know, you've got Henry Ford, who's Elon Musk, who is building, got a production line, all done it, well, mostly done in-house, um, and he's just plowing through it. Then you've got the government, who was like basically Henry Ford multiple years before, where they're making individual rockets slowly in one factory and then they're moving on to the next one and the next one. It's it's a similar comparison, I think, to to the way it works now. I think governments are slow. They develop a rocket. They then throw it away. They make another one, throw it away. Whereas SpaceX, you know, they have a whole line of these that just need to be refurbished and launched again. I think it's, an, it's a decent comparison to make, I think. And that's why you know, Elon Musk has been able to lower the cost like the Model T Ford. It was dramatically lower cost because they had all production lines, you know, running uh, under well, a one one factory. It was kind of like, yeah, it's a much better way of doing it, I think. Um, and I wish governments would go more towards that approach, but it's difficult. It so, really is. Yeah, no, so 
But uh, it is that's not because, for example, with your company, Dragon Aerospace, that's not mm. quite that's not quite your approach, is it? You're not going to be manufacturing under one roof. So how how are you able to, or are you? I don't know. How are you able to you yourself so, operate so, like that? So so what we're doing is we're developing pretty much all of the rocket, the engine, the airframe, the nose cone, everything in in house. But the electricals and the guidance system will be will use commercial off the shelf parts. And we'll just get them and test them ourselves, go, yep, this is good enough for what we need, and we'll adapt it into the system to create the final guidance computer, guidance system, and, and flight data, you know, transmitters, things like that. All of that will be done um, commercial off the shelf. So it's it's not like the government where they get parts made specifically for what they need by loads of different companies. It's kind of like we're going to literally commercial off the shelf as i said ebay and amazon some components you can literally get from there that are able to survive you know 15 g's it's it's it, yeah so it's up to us to test and we'll put it in the rocket if it if we think it works and we'll test it you know spacex i think i said this as well spacex have not launched a single falcon 9 that was identical to the one before it every single new one has different stuff on it so most of the time they'll carry new avionics that are um, are basically cheaper than the old avionics but they carry both of them to see if this new package works if it does work they get rid of the old one and put the new one on the new rocket that's that's sort of the the rate of advancement and the rate of sort of innovation that we need and we want in dragon aerospace and it's stuff governments don't really do at all i don't think so, so once you once you've got your sounding rocket up and running and people are using it yeah uh, and uh, well actually we haven't even talked about launch sites uh, what kind mm. of launch sites are you looking at around britain for that uh we are trying to make it so that we don't need a dedicated launch site it can just be transported in a cargo container set up there'll be a launch pad basically in inbox that you can set up and you launch from wherever you want Providing, you know, obviously you're not going to launch near anywhere densely populated and there will be sort of consideration as to the flight paths above it. Um, but we don't want to limit ourselves to the current launch sites because then there's obviously lead times, you know, booking the, the site. We don't even know how it works, how much time it will take. That's all something we want to avoid doing. We want to be able to just literally pop up to a field, set up the launch pad and launch within the day and then go. That that's the idea of that. That's sort of the amount of flexibility we want to have with Dragon Aerospace is the ability to launch pretty much anywhere, at any time, uh, with minimal lead time. So yeah, yeah. I mean that that's yeah that that's really cool. So it's a bit. It so it is. It's kind of got that military heritage, then, isn't it? With with yeah. the, with, with the type of yeah inter- yeah literally <laughs> yeah. Set up a, a missile station and launch, and then yeah. I mean that's that's kind of what we're going for but it's for science not not destruction yeah yeah <laughs> well well yeah well, i've heard von braun say that of course but <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, well, yeah i mean how yeah I mean, how do you stop people getting interested in what you're doing who are from that kind of angle presumably you you, you do you you have to have talks with mm. with 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 people because presumably you're starting to you you develop you develop uh, systems that can be used in a militaristic mm. way. Therefore, you, presumably, there is some oversight from your local military. Yeah. What, what tends to happen 
is that if they see potential in it, they will try and get involved and, and try and learn more about it. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no motivation for us to go into anything military at all. We don't want to do that. Um, the the There are already systems in place that are more advanced, so, uh, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, air-to-air missiles, surface-to-air missiles, all, all of those missiles exist. And I think our system's going to be different. The only thing that they would find interesting is the guidance system. But... Uh, yeah, we, we we keep everything very secretive. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, but there's, there's there's no idea for for us to go anything military because yeah, it's for science, not not destruction. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, once you've got your sound, I, I've actually I, I I stopped halfway through asking this question before. What once you've got your sounding rocket going? Yeah. Uh, do you have plans in your mind to to go orbital and start? <laughs> getting into that yes yes we do um so originally i wanted to go orbital first but i realized how silly that would be you know um a new startup saying they're going to put things into orbit it's it's although spacex did it elon musk was a multimillionaire when he said that um and so it's okay for him to do it but it would require a significant number of people who are dedicated to it who would yeah and getting funding for it would be an, an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I know Orbex have got funding, um, but their, their team is massive. Um, it's just not practical, I think, um, for me to do. So what our idea is, is to start with suborbital vehicles at a lower cost and prove ourselves in that sphere, a bit like uh, Rocket Lab did with their Atia rocket. Uh, they started with a sounding rocket, and then that's what they used to get funding for an orbital rocket. That's kind of what the approach that we want to take we want to prove ourselves with sounding rockets and then expand to orbital we don't we don't want to go straight to orbital because well looking at how uh, spacex started the amount of stress elon musk went through you know when he had like three third launches and the, if if he didn't succeed with the next one he would have uh, gone bust it's kind of we don't want that especially because we're not millionaires yeah i mean yeah it it it's, Everything, everything in life is like that, isn't it? We would yeah. never have heard of Elon Musk had that fourth rocket failed. It, exactly, it's, it's like it's amazing. Exactly, isn't it? yeah. So there is an incredible amount of risk, and because this country, as I said before, it's not as optimistic as America. There's not as much money. Uh, we have to do it in a very sort of conservative way. Are you a music fan? I am a music fan. Yes. Do you have do you have a specific? Um, I, I probably should have warned you about this one. Do you have a specific um, space related song you'd like to stick on our on our um, space playlist? I've got to ban you. I've got to ban you from Bowie, obviously, because that's too obvious. Yeah. Well, I'm a massive fan of, of you know the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and sort of like the Doc Two themes and things like that. I I used to <laughs> used to do remixes myself. I still do. Um, I sort of make um, sort of theme tunes and things like that. So I like Doctor Two themes and sort of synth music. That's sort of my favourite. I like Ultravox, but it's not really space related. Um, I mean, the Radiophonic Workshop. That's that's good enough for me. Peter Howell 
rendition of the Doc Two theme. I think that's that's probably one of the coolest songs ever. Okay, no. <laughs> I'm a massive fan. All right, well that, that's going on. That's going on. That's a, that's awesome. a very that, that's a cool shot. That one, very good. Yeah. Thanks very much, Camera, for for taking the Skype call. And uh, it was a really it was really good to meet you last week. And uh, yeah, it was a great panel. Get building. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. No, that's that's my pleasure. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! Uh, Jamie, do you want to hear Bob's uh, advice? We absolutely would love to hear it. So Bob Hodges, legend. Well, basically, he's saying, look, wash your hands, don't touch your face, so don't pick your yep. nose and, and rub your eyes, don't smoke, eat nice fresh food, lower your carbs, um... Be extra vigilant if you've got uh, if you're a diabetic. Um, watch yeah. out for blood pressure medication, particularly ones ending in prill or sartan, because uh, they might make things worse. Uh, and it's all about slowing down the peak number of cases uh, so that we don't exceed the NHS capacity. And that will that will apply to everyone's uh, health services around the world. Uh, you've just got to slow down the rate of infection so keep yourself fit keep yourself clean and eat don't fresh yeah and don't go out doing unnecessary social engagements i think no i think i think that's that's possibly the the key here we were uh, we were pretty terrible last week but i've totally modified my behavior now uh talking of which uh the science museum science museum on the 25th we'll keep you posted about that if we hear um, anything, we'll we'll let you know via social media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and yeah. we will keep you updated. Keep you updated. Everyone, stay safe. Listen to podcasts. Yeah. Take take the time to be at home with your family. Watch loads of good TV, and um, we'll see you next week. Keep positive. Bye bye, Spodcats. See you soon, bye.